Hello, I'm Alex Akavon, and you're listening to May It Please the Court. If the state of Georgia can regulate Hardwick sexuality engaged in private with consenting adults, Hardwick cannot be free. The Constitution was written to ensure limited government. If there's no right of privacy, if Georgia can enforce the statute, we sacrifice the liberty the framers thought they guaranteed us. Well, the Supreme Court disagreed with you, Ms. Shaw. They found that the statute did not violate the right of privacy. Now, why is that? Because they're wrong. Outside of the legal world, a lot of people hadn't fully grasped the significance of Griswold versus Connecticut when it was decided in 1965, even though it established the recognition of a fundamental right to privacy which was crucial for the history of the United States. But by the 1980s, what most people did understand was that the Supreme Court had declared all abortion bans nationwide unconstitutional. And so, nearly every American had an opinion on Roe versus Wade. The clip you heard was from Warner Brothers' 1993 film The Pelican Brief, starring Julia Roberts. Her character, Darby Shaw, argues to her law professor that the 14th Amendment's fundamental right to privacy should also extend to protecting private homosexual conduct. In real life, a lot of legal scholars agreed with her. But they might have underestimated the effect Roe v. Wade would have on the makeup of the court. Abortion was now a political issue that started to divide politicians into those who would appoint justices willing to overturn Roe, and those promising to defend it. By 1980, the Republican Party had begun to establish itself as the pro-life party, which led to a gradual and powerful alliance with the evangelical population. Among President Ronald Reagan's campaign promises, was to defend a fetus's right to life, which, from a legal standpoint, meant justices willing to reverse or limit substantive due process reasoning. That meant for the first time since the 1930s, there was a sharp ideological divide on how to interpret the due process clause. But this time, conservatives wanted to narrow the scope of the 14th Amendment while progressives tried to broaden it. And with Republicans controlling the White House for the entire decade, more and more judicial non-interventionists joined the court. By 1986, enough conservatives were on the Supreme Court to tell people like Darby Shaw that on the subject of due process and homosexuality, they're the ones who are wrong. In a case from Georgia, the Supreme Court said the Constitution gives no right to homosexuals to engage in sodomy, anal or oral sex. Certainly the statute is on the books, and any statute that is on the books as a criminal statute of this state should be enforced, and that's what it's for. The right not to have Big Brother enter the bedroom is a right that I would have hoped the majority of the court would vindicate. Gay people were actually fighting back I think this is a blatant example of uh, judicial bigotry. Because someone must win and someone must lose, there will always be someone unhappy with the court's rulings. The 
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The 1980s were a very difficult time for homosexuals in America. Gays and lesbians were banned from serving in the military and rejected by mainstream society, all while the AIDS epidemic was sweeping the United States and particularly affecting the gay community. On top of all of this, most states had laws that prohibited sodomy, which meant that homosexuals were prohibited from performing sexual acts even in the privacy of their own home. With the trend in favor of expanding 14th Amendment rights, a group of activists sought judicial interference. After all, the Supreme Court had responded to the 1960s by recognizing a fundamental right to privacy. First, that had meant striking down contraception bans for married couples. Later, it had meant the right to marry someone of a different race. Most famously, it meant recognizing a woman's right to choose whether to get an abortion, in spite of the state's interest in determining when life begins. All of these had come from the Due Process Clause. So if it could be responsible for all of that, then what about protecting gay rights? I mean, consensual sex between two males or two females seems like a private decision along the lines of deciding whether or not to use contraception. Maybe it was time for the Supreme Court to apply the 14th Amendment to let homosexuals be themselves. Gay rights advocates got their chance to make this argument in the case of Bowers v. Hardwick. Here are the facts. A man named Michael Hardwick was a gay bartender in Atlanta, Georgia. One night, Michael was out drinking. He was carrying a beer bottle in his hand, and rather than find a trash can, he tossed the bottle into a bush. But a police officer saw him and gave him a citation for public drunkenness. Now up until this point, Hardwick's story is relatively unremarkable. But it would prove to be about far more than littering and public drunkenness when he missed his court date due to a clerical error. Well, since failure to appear in court is a crime, a warrant was issued for Hardwick's arrest. Again, nothing too interesting yet, just a lot of administrative issues to untangle. But when police officers arrived at his house, a guest answered the door and let them in. The police officers looked around the apartment for Hardwick and found him in the bedroom having oral sex with another man. Now these days, if something like that happened to you, you'd probably expect the police officers to say, put on some clothes, we need to discuss what happened to your court date. But in 1986, homosexual acts were illegal in Georgia. So Hardwick was taken into custody and charged with sodomy. The district attorney, however, elected not to prosecute in light of the facts. But Hardwick sued the attorney general of Georgia, a man named Michael Bowers, challenging the Georgia law that had prohibited sodomy in the first place. What started off as littering had escalated into the first major legal battle for gay rights. Now, especially from a modern perspective, Hardwick and his legal team seemed to have a lot going for them. 
The right to privacy was officially a trend started decades earlier by Justice John Marshall Harlan II, the first to recognize a fundamental right to privacy in the 14th Amendment. So arguably, as long as the homosexual acts were between consenting adults, the same principles should apply. But the Hardwick team had a lot going against them, too. For starters, as I mentioned, the 1980s were not a particularly welcoming time for homosexuals among the mainstream. The vast majority of people saw homosexuality as a choice to partake in a particular behavior. On top of that, Justice Harlan had specifically excluded homosexuality from what he considered a protected liberty interest. He lumped it in with bigamy and incest, all of which were behaviors that the state could still prohibit. But Justice Harlan II had long since passed away, perhaps reunited with his grandfather, Justice Harlan I, in a better place where they sit around and talk about landmark cases. But despite the uphill climb before them, gay rights activists were ready to give it their best shot to strike down sodomy laws nationwide. The nine justices they had to convince were Justices William Brennan, Byron White, Thurgood Marshall, Harry Blackman, the man who wrote Roe v. Wade, William Rehnquist, John Paul Stevens, Sandra Day O'Connor, Chief Justice Warren Burger, and finally, Justice Lewis Powell, who would prove to be the most important part of this story. Ready to give the Due Process Clause another whirl, Hardwick's attorneys arrived at the Supreme Court on March 31, 1986, to deliver oral arguments. The attorney for Bowers went first. His job was to keep sodomy and homosexuality within the state's power to prohibit. To do so, he would have to, at the very least, convince the court to draw a line at homosexuality. Here is Michael Hobbs, the lawyer for the state of Georgia, arguing that prior decisions, like Griswold, for instance, have followed our nation's traditions in that they seek to preserve families and family autonomy, unlike engaging in sodomy. Many of our, of this court's decisions, have followed the history and traditions of our nation in making its determination as to whether or not a particular activity is entitled to constitutional protection as a fundamental right. Thus far, this court has concluded that the right of privacy includes matters which involve marriage, the family, procreation, abortion, child rearing, and child education. It has never concluded and I would suggest to the court that there is no constitutional warrant to conclude that there should be a fundamental right to engage in homosexual sodomy or any other type of extramarital sexual relationships. Now Hobbes was not there to argue for overturning the cases that had come before, like Roe v. Wade. He was there to set limits on the doctrine of substantive due process. As this court indicated in Roe v. Wade, the right of privacy is not limited. It is not absolute. Pardon me. There must be limits, and it is submitted that in finding these limits, we must be wary of creating a regime in the name of a constitutional right, which is little more than 
one of self-gratification and indulgence. The Constitution must remain a charter of tolerance for individual liberty. We have no quarrel with that. But it must not become an instrument or a change in the social order. After Mr. Hobbs sat down, it was time for Lawrence Tribe to make his case for Michael Hardwick and for the entire homosexual community. And Tribe was abundantly clear about one thing. The right to sexual privacy was a right found in the Due Process Clause, which he calls the Liberty Clause. So what, uh, what provision in the Constitution uh, do you rely on, or that we should rely on to strike down this thing? The Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment, Justice White, has given further meaning and content by a course of decisions over half a century. That was the core of his argument. All Hardwick was guilty of was engaging in consensual adult relations deemed immoral and therefore made illegal. If the Constitution has a right to privacy, then that has to apply to a person's right to sexual privacy in their own home. You're listening to May It Please the Court. As Tribe was gathering steam, Justice Powell had a question. He wanted to know whether there was any limit to this line of reasoning. In other words, is the issue about sex in the home? What about homosexual acts in a car or in a motel? Is the line sodomy? You can't ban sodomy, but you can ban things like incest? He wanted to know where the line was. Now, he had voted with the majority in Roe, so he was definitely open to protecting private decisions. But Justice Powell still approached homosexuality as a consensual behavior, but behavior nonetheless. Here is Justice Powell's exchange with Professor Tribe. It seems to us that the state's power to regulate the terms of relationships, just as it regulates the terms of contracts, includes the power to punish a breach of contract in a home. It can certainly punish adultery wherever it occurs without a government's problem. So the limiting principle is limited to sodomy. Is that a principle? No, not quite. I I think it's somewhat broader to be candid, Justice Powell. I think it includes all physical, sexual intimacies of a kind that are not demonstrably physically harmful, that are consensual and non-commercial in the privacy of the home. Tribe chose his words very carefully. He needed to distinguish incest and bigamy while also being broad enough to encompass more than the simple act of sodomy. But the other justices kept coming back to the point about tradition and repeatedly brought up Justice Harlan II explicitly carving out homosexuality from the right to privacy. Tribe had to keep a level head and acknowledge Harlan's views, But he also argued that society evolves, and its principles should apply to new situations. Now at this point, Justice Rehnquist interjected, wanting to know why the evolution on gay rights can't be determined by a majority vote, state by state. 
And he wanted to know why Harlan would specifically exclude homosexuality if we could just evolve on the issue. Here is Tribe's interchange with Justice Rehnquist. And again, he really keeps the issue focused on the case at hand. I do not think that if this case had been squarely presented before Justice Harlan, that he would have decided to draw the line based on which body parts come into contact. That is, I think he would have recognized that the power of the state, in a case properly presented, the power of the state to have its own catalog uh, of how you can touch someone else in the privacy of the home is limited. Well, then he just wrote that part of his dissent in a fit of absent-mindedness? No, I, I don't think Justice Harlan was capable of fits of absent-mindedness. But this court's doctrine about advisory opinions recognizes that even the best justices are at their best when they have a genuine case or controversy before them. And I do think we have one here. Tribe and Hobbs left the Supreme Court building that day, leaving the issue of homosexuality in the hands of nine judges. Sitting in a conference room in the Supreme Court building, the nine justices deliberated. After reviewing the briefs and transcripts and after arguing with each other, they took a vote to decide the future of homosexuality in America. The vote was five to four in favor of Michael Hardwick. Justices White, Rehnquist, O'Connor, and Chief Justice Berger said they would uphold the ban on sodomy, while Justices Blackman, Brennan, Marshall, Stevens, and Powell indicated their support for striking the law down. A historic moment for the gay community. Or at least it might have been. Because even though the original vote after deliberations was 5-4 in favor of Hardwick, Justice Powell started to have his doubts. He was still loyal to the fundamental right to privacy concept and showed no indication that he wanted to reverse the Roe decision. He was even leaning towards applying its logic to homosexuality. But being limited to his own life experience, Powell did not know much about the homosexual world. One of the biggest consequences of being shunned by the mainstream was that a vast amount of homosexuals stayed in the closet. Justice Powell repeatedly told the other justices that he didn't know any homosexuals personally, even though many people knew that his own law clerk at the time was gay. But despite what Justice Powell knew or didn't know about homosexuality, his observation just shows what the general attitude was towards the gay community. And just as the case was about to be officially decided, a few of his colleagues emphatically argued why he should change his mind. Most notably, they told him that if the court applies fundamental right reasoning to homosexuality, then there would be no conceivable limit as to how often the court can use the due process clause to strike down laws. And those words got to Justice Powell. No conceivable limit. He specifically addressed the issue of setting limits during oral arguments. Was substantive due process starting to get out of hand? Had he helped open a Pandora's box where the Supreme Court could just strike down any law it wants to? Were we entering a new type of Lochner era? No one knows exactly what went through Justice Powell's mind in the spring of 1986. But what we do know is how he ultimately chose to vote. 
On June 30th, 1986, the Supreme Court issued its decision. The final official vote was 5-4 to four in favor of Bowers. The court found that the Georgia law against sodomy did not violate the Constitution. Prohibitions against homosexuality could continue. Justice White wrote the majority opinion, saying that the Constitution does not give people the right to engage in sodomy. He dismissed the idea of protecting consensual private sex, saying it would be too difficult to distinguish homosexuality from adultery, incest, and other sex crimes. Chief Justice Berger joined the majority, but also wrote his own opinion that went over the historical attitudes towards homosexual sex. He said he did not find it appropriate for the court to reverse millennia of moral teaching. Meanwhile, Justice Blackman emphatically dissented, claiming that the other justices were so obsessed with their own thoughts on homosexuality that they ignore the fundamental freedom for each person to explore their own sexual intimacy, which is a key part of a human's existence. Finally, Justice John Paul Stevens wrote his own dissent that instead focused on the Equal Protection Clause, finding that homosexuals are being discriminated against unconstitutionally. Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan joined both dissenting opinions, but it was not enough. Bowers versus Hardwick was a major blow for the LGBT community, and the first big due process defeat since the clause had made its comeback in the 1960s. As of 1986, the Supreme Court interpreted the Due Process Clause as giving it the right to strike down state laws that infringe on privacy, which include laws banning contraception, interracial marriage, and abortion, but not laws banning sodomy. Reportedly, Justice Powell would later regret his decision to switch votes, but the question of a constitutional right to homosexuality would not come up again until the next millennium. And for the homosexual community, if 1986 wasn't bad enough, it was about to get worse. Two months after the Bowers decision, Chief Justice Berger retired, and Ronald Reagan nominated Associate Justice Rehnquist to fill his empty seat. The man who had dissented in Roe v. Wade and voted with the majority to uphold anti-sodomy laws was now the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But that still left one open seat. And this time, Reagan wanted a true conservative on the court. A man of faith. A man who would overturn Roe v. Wade and bring an approach to the Constitution that would end this substantive due process way of thinking. That man was Antonin Scalia, the court's first Italian-American. Scalia would not prove to be popular with the gay community. Personal views aside, Scalia was an originalist. He became famous for his allegiance to an approach that reads the Constitution based on what its words specifically meant at the time they were written. The word abortion does not appear in the Constitution and neither does any mention of homosexuality. In fact, since the word privacy is not in the 14th Amendment, it is very difficult to convince a judge like Justice Scalia 
that the Griswold court had properly interpreted a fundamental right to privacy in the Due Process Clause. But if you're a gay rights advocate and a fan of Star Wars, if 1986 felt like Revenge of the Sith, then 1987 would be a new hope. Justice Powell was retiring, which meant that President Reagan was going to nominate his third and final justice to the court. But the Democrats in the Senate were not going to let the centrist Powell be replaced by another Scalia. After some grueling debates and confirmation hearings, it took Reagan three nominations before he finally got a candidate confirmed. That candidate's name was Anthony Kennedy, who decades later, the Washington Post would refer to as the judicial champion for gay rights. But before progressives would get another bite at the apple, conservatives were preparing for a rematch of their own. After George H.W. Bush was elected president, he continued the trend of appointing justices willing to overturn Roe v. Wade. And an opportunity to revisit the abortion issue finally came in 1992. But this time, there was a woman on the Supreme Court bench. And although Justice Sandra Day O'Connor had made it clear that she was pro-life, she had other factors to consider once she became the deciding vote in determining the future of Roe v. Wade and women's reproductive rights. We'll talk more about the decision Sandra Day O'Connor had to make and what she ultimately decided to do in episode 8. May It Please the Court is produced by Untwist the Facts. Visit our website at www.untwistthefacts.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Untwist the Facts. I'm Alex Akavon, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you.